Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we are joined by Bob Dennis, Dr. Bob Dennis actually, although he doesn't have a formal medical degree, he has a PhD and he wrote a new book called Stroke of Luck and it uh, really surprised him uh, to find this type of material coming from Bob, but he did and he wrote it out of personal experience because he recently had a stroke and made, made magnificent recovery and I'll certainly let him go into all the specific details. But it, this is, the reason I want to interview him is because this is such a, a massive problem in the United States and as we're recording this, yesterday uh, one of the 52-year-old celebrity, Luke Perry, died, away from, died from a stroke. And just as a, an example, that this is pervasive in the, in the United States and in, in surprisingly hitting people at the younger and younger age. So, um, and either you can die acutely like Luke did, or you can suffer with, which in many cases is even worse, with severe profound disabilities for the rest of your life. So Bob is here to discuss his really incredible, I, it's hard to imagine because he just had a stroke recently as you'll find out, but that he compiled this entire incredible book as a resource to help people with strokes in such a short time. So I'll let you really expand from here, Bob, because it's your book and uh, we're off to the races, but okay. welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Dr. McCullough. I'm always delighted to talk to you when, when I get the chance. So, um, I thought I'd mention, you know, what my book is really about. Um, I woke up one morning this in, in June of this year, actually early July of uh, 2018, and uh, realized I had had a stroke while I was in bed. And I could barely talk, but I was able to, you know, get myself to, to a doctor. And they, of course, they loaded me immediately onto an, uh, an ambulance and took me to the hospital. And so I was really aware of what was going on, what was happening. Um, and I paid very close attention to what they were asking me to do and what they were telling me. And I've, of course, I was outside the, the three-hour thrombolytic window, so that was not an option. So I knew I was in for a really long, slow. Well, well why, why don't we stop there? Because some people watching this may know it that may not understand what thrombolytic window means. So yes, that's that's a good point. So the uh, standard of care now, as I understand it, is that when you have a stroke. Within three hours, they can give you thrombolytics, which are just chemicals that they give you intravenously, I think, to, I think it's very fast that way, to, to break up a thrombus or a clot. So 85% of strokes are clots, 15% are, are hemorrhagic bleeds. But for the 85% that are a clot, if you catch it, the person within the three-hour window, you can give them a thrombolytic, and it apparently rolls back the clock and, and saves and preserves brain tissue without permanent, you know, death of the, of the neurons. And, uh, yeah, and they have you to, have do, to be, and at three hours, you have to differentiate between the two because you get to give one to the hemorrhagic. If you get that therapy, you'll kill them. Yes. Probably. It's disastrous. So they always ask you as you're riding into the hospital, they ask you about 50 times, time since the last normal, when was the last time you felt normal? And then they, then they pin down the time. And then the first thing they do is they throw you into an MRI and they image your brain to see was it a thrombus or was it, you know, ischemic, a clot, sort of, or what? Not really a clot. It's, you know, it's a plug, and um, or was it uh, hemorrhagic? And when they did mine, they actually discovered that I had had a previous stroke. So this is actually my second stroke. I had had another one about four or five years earlier. And you're and not first, you're not too old now, are you, Bob? 
I'm 55. <laughs> so a little older than Lou Perry just passed. A little bit, you know, but I'm, I'm about getting to be about that age. Um, although I'm a little surprised because there's a lot of things I was doing that would have prevented it, except for the last few years where I had had all that chronic pain that you know about because you and I have discussed it. And I was really just not able to be as active as I wanted to be. I couldn't really even stand up straight. I couldn't walk more than a few steps. Really quite difficult. But then since the second stroke, the very first thing I noticed, the instant I had a stroke, I also noticed that I had no more chronic pain. I had no more pain at all. I thought, well, either this is really the end or something wonderful has happened. So anyway, the, the thing is that I paid very close attention as I was going into the hospital what they were asking me and what they were telling me. And then I paid very close attention to how they were assessing me the whole time. Fortunately for me, most of my colleagues are neurophysiologists. So on the very first day, I was able to call my friends and, and ask them or have my wife ask them, what should I be doing to get a, the best possible recovery? So I got a lot of real expert opinions on it from my colleagues. And I later, you know, let Dr. McCullough know that I'd had a stroke and he had some opinions on the subject, which were very helpful, a few other friends of mine. So interestingly, within the mainstream medical care, they, they basically had a, 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 you know, a fork in the path. Either you get thrombolytics or they hold you for a while in the hospital, evaluate you, and then send you home. And I kept asking the mainstream physicians, you know, what should I be doing? What should I be doing to improve my recovery? And they kept saying, well, take your meds, which are statins. <laughs> yeah, I know how you feel about that, but so do I. And uh, baby aspirin. And consider trying a, um, you know, consider trying a, a Mediterranean diet. And then the last thing was they said, well, you know, you should go to PT too. Now, I mean, I spoke to everybody who was at the hospital, you know, a level one neurotrauma stroke center. And that was some total of all of their advice. And I was thinking to myself, you know, seriously, come on, this, this happens to what, 800,000 Americans a year? I know there's things you can do after stroke. Where's the good advice? And, and it just, it wasn't forthcoming. No matter who I talked to, residents, nurses, doctors, neurologists in the, you know, in the, in the mainstream system, my colleagues told me a lot more. Um, and of course, I knew a lot more because I'm a medical design, you know, medical tissue you know, engineer. So I knew a lot more than, than they were telling me. So I got kind of, got kind of a little angry about the fact that they don't give good advice. Like they basically give you the advice, you know, just lie there and wait, which in my opinion, lying around and relaxing and waiting after a stroke is the worst thing you can do. Once you know it's not hemorrhagic, you should be doing things to promote your neuroplasticity. And that's what I did. So, so they didn't really have any advice to give me. So I actually just started doing what I knew was right. So they would give me these, what I would call rapid assessment tests, right? They would say things like, uh, flip your hand over on your knee like this. And I had a real difficulty with that with my left hand. Right. And then they would say, you know, follow, you know, do eye tracking, things like that. But then they would ask you to, you know, they'd hold up an object and say, what is this? I had real difficulty saying words. I knew what they were right away. I had no trouble recalling them. I just couldn't you know, enunciate them. And um, so I remember every time they gave me one of these rapid assessment tests, and as soon as they turned their back, I would start practicing, practicing, practicing. And I talk about this in the book because the book, I have little, uh, 
you know, stories about what I did. And you probably remember this one. One of the residents pointed at a computer in the, in the emergency room. I was still on the gurney. They hadn't even taken me off the gurney yet. I was not even officially admitted to the emergency room yet. And he pointed at a computer. He said, what's that? And, and I tried to say it. I tried to say workstation. You know, it was like, and, you know, sounded terrible. And I couldn't say it. And so, you know, he walked off and he came back about an hour later and said, and he looked at his attending, which is sort of his boss, doctor, you know, that's teaching him how to be a doctor. And he pointed at the workstation again because he wanted him to hear how he said that word. And he said, what's that? And I said, workstation. And he, and he, literally, <laughs> and he, literally, he literally looked like somebody had just, you know, electrocuted him. And he, and he, and he said, you know, holy, and I won't say the word he said, but... He said, how'd you do that? And I said, well, it sounded bad the first 500 times I said it. But after I said it, you know, and this was about an hour later, right? So my story, and this is exactly how my entire recovery went. If I couldn't do something, I did it over and over and over again until I could do it, you know? And so I, I totally, I recovered to the point where I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. By the end of the first day, I was pretty much ambulatory and I could communicate with people. One day. So is, I'm no genius. I'm just a regular guy, but that is neuroplasticity right there happening. And you can make the most of it. And no one said anything about it to me. And I kept asking and nobody told me this. It's the worst advice you can get in a hospital is just relax, wait, we'll get to you. And they did the same thing to me for physical therapy. Oh, we'll get to you in about three weeks. Well, right after your brain is injured, you have this period, this brief window of immense neuroplasticity, and you need to take advantage of it. So I got kind of a little ticked off by this whole system. And I was like, you know what, somebody needs to start telling people this, because I believe it's absolutely true, which is as soon as you have a stroke, make sure you start doing things, especially the things that they've asked you to do when they're assessing you, because those things are safe, they're effective, they zero in on your problem, and you can do them without any special equipment right? One of the ones they asked me to do was say, like, talk like a baby, da, 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 ma, 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 which I couldn't do, right? Mm -hmm. But you can sit in a gurney and you can go da, 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 da until you can do it, right? And, and all of these things. So I list all of them in the book because I think that's a really good place to start. So my advice, and I put this right at the beginning of the book so that you can just read it for free. It's on, it's on Amazon. I, I really don't want to charge anything for this book. I just want people to have it. So I, so you know, it's outrageous to get it in hard copy, but it, it's really designed as, a, as an ebook. It's designed so that you can change the font size and so that you can get it for very little money because, and also as an ebook, you can have it the day you need it, which is the day you have a stroke, right? You don't have to wait for it to be delivered. And the idea is you can have it even before you have it, you know, so you can look at the summary and I tell you what I did and what I thought was important right before the table of contents so that it's right there for free on Amazon. Because I'm kind of, as a public service, I just want people to know this, because if, if people just have that little piece of information, whatever you're having trouble with, just keep doing it. Yeah, let me just interject here uh, on this incredible illustration that you've just provided of neuroplasticity, because we didn't really provide a term for it, and some people may not understand what that is. But essentially, it's the ability of your brain to rewire itself. And I've never heard of another story like yours where you were actually able to recover the, the damp, damage, the, the function of the damaged cells in such a short time. 
So what you're doing by that training is that you're developing alternate pathways to bypass the original neurons that were responsible for that action. That is and, absolutely uh, correct. Yeah, and as you said, the sooner you do it, the better. So I just wanted people to have that mm -hmm. foundation so they could right. appreciate so what I, you're doing. In the full-length version of the book, which is about 600 pages in hard copy, I talk about all of that, that mechanism of neuroplasticity you know, at, at great length. And people have argued about neuroplasticity for decades now, neurologists, and especially neurophysiologists. But it turns out that neuroplasticity is something that happens every time you learn something, right? And you can take uh, different kinds of supplements and drugs and, and just food substances, which are thought of as nootropics, that, uh, and, and that sometimes they explicitly say, you know, this promotes neuroplasticity. And if you put in the term neuroplasticity, just as a Google search term, there's all kinds of blogs on it. And I, I download it and I, and I show a few of these blogs and they're all very similar. They all amount to the following. Do novel things. Keep moving. Keep learning. Keep trying things. Keep challenging yourself. You don't have to have a stroke to have neuroplasticity, right? It, it, you, it happens when your brain is working. So the, the, the traditional belief is that you only have a short time after a stroke to do your recovery. And then after about six months, you can't recover anymore. But there are people who never even had a stroke who are enhancing their own neuroplasticity just by doing novel things, challenging their brain and exercising their brain neuroplasticity. And I think, I think the converse is true too. Like when people stop challenging their mind, they stop doing challenging new things and they go into a nice, quiet, isolated retirement. What happens to them? You know, we know what happens to them. They, they don't do well. Your brain needs to be challenged. And interestingly, the human brain is very, very well adapted to certain kinds of things, right? Not just doing crossword puzzles, because I'm pretty sure they didn't have crossword puzzles, you know, when we were Homo erectus, you know, running across the African savanna. But the human brain is really good at certain things, and it, and it, and it quickly adapts to those things, like recognizing faces, talking to people, navigating through space. And if you do those things, you're naturally enhancing neuroplasticity. So that's really what the book is all about. That's great. So, um, and I, I give a little of the backstory of how we first met. Um, initially, I, I learned of your work because you produce, uh, as you met, referenced earlier, biomedical device, or you're, you're a biomedical engineer. And uh, in, in my estimation and review of the field, probably produced the finest uh, PEMF device. And you know, some people are concerned about EMF, but this is the beneficial EMF that actually can stimulate healing in your tissue because of the frequencies and wavelengths and a few other characteristics. And you designed uh, a system that is the most cost affordable one out there, literally better than uh, units that cost orders of magnitude more than yours is under a thousand dollars and crazy. And I use it pretty much every day myself yeah. personally. So as a result of that interaction and, and your device is called the M1. ICES. ICES M1. So if you just type that in Google, you'll find it. But because of that interaction, I invited, uh, introduced you to Dr. Lee Cowden, one mm -hmm. of my mentors, and you've spoken at ACIM, the, uh, the uh, Association for uh, American? No, it's not American. It's American College of Integrative Medicine. American, no, it's not the American College. It's a, a comprehensive. 
forget what the A stands for. I'm sorry, the American College is the group. Meeting. Yeah, Association, Association of Comprehensive Integrated Medicine, ACAM, which meets quarterly, typically in Dallas, but every year they have an annual event in November uh, in Orlando, Florida. And you've been there the last two years. So uh, this I just take a little side tangent. We'll go back to the stroke book. And I'm wondering if you could share your experiences at that event, because you this last time you had already had your stroke there for three months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I've gone to a lot of scientific conferences. My background is, you know, biomedical engineering and biophysics. I've been to, you know, biophysical society, uh, um, biology conferences, different medical conf conferences, plastic surgery conferences. So, you know, a lot of the a lot of the people that I run with are, you know, pretty high level in these different levels of conferences. Conferences on gerontology. I actually helped organize a big conference on gerontology you know, had a lot of people there um, 20 years ago in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So I went to ACIM without any expectations one way or the other, other than that, that Dr. McCola had invited me and it sounded good. But I actually had a very, very good experience at ACIM. And I recommend that people go to it because there's a tremendous diversity of, of thinking and opinions about health. And, um, you know, I'm sort of on the I'm sort of on the straight laced, you know, bow tie wearing uh, uh, scientist end of the spectrum. You know, talking I talk about electromagnetism and you know differential equations and you know what we know about biophysics. But also, the thing that I really talk about is is that EMF really works. But we just don't know why, right? Mm -hmm. And that's accepted. That's embraced by the community of of clinicians and scholars who go to ATIM. It is not embraced by the community of scholars who study mainstream medicine, not at all. They're like, well, if you can't describe the mechanism, then it can't possibly work, which is not true. It's not true at all. In fact, most things in medicine, we knew they worked pretty well and they were pretty safe and pretty effective long before we understood exactly why. Yeah, when, I was, in when I was in medical school uh, taking pharmacology, uh, they did it at that time, and that was in the 70s. They didn't understand how aspirin worked, and it was it was discovered shortly after I graduated. But the, the mm -hmm. actual mechanism. So I mean, that was a profound one. The aspirin had been around for probably close to 100 years. Yeah, it had been. It absolutely had been. In fact, um, um, morphine, I guess, was the first isolated compound in sort of modern times, and that was in uh, 1805, 1807. So it's been 200 years, and they still, to this day, are discovering new mechanisms for that. So, and the example I always give is, is, you know, if I'm in a room with a bunch of mainstream doctors, I ask a very leading question to kind of help them get perspective. And I ask them, would you prescribe or would you perform a procedure or medication that you didn't fully understand? Would you, would you do that to a patient? And they all uniformly say, no, you know, no way, right? Um, and then I ask them, well, okay, have you ever given anybody anesthesia? And then the room gets really quiet because it turns out anesthesia is a great medical mystery. We know that it seems to put people out and it alters their memory and consciousness of pain. But scientifically, we don't really know what pain is. Not really, not at a deep level. We don't understand what consciousness is and we don't understand what memory is or even where it resides in the brain. So we certainly don't understand how a chemical 
that can be very yeah. similar to other chemicals does that. And, 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 and that's one of the great pillars, one of the three great pillars of modern medicine is anesthesia. And we have no idea at all why it works. Yeah, well, let's get back to the, the stroke thing because I think I don't want to go, we can go on deep tangent for hours. But uh, your, your book is just a magnificent compilation of resources that practical resources, like things that you can uh, use in your home, like uh, materials and make sure that you don't slip and fall on your stairs and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other uh, examples like that. Honestly, you know, I sat there and I mostly typed out what I already knew or what I had discovered right then, things I had found right then that were useful. And I, I, when I started it, I thought it was going to be a pamphlet, you know, like a trifold. <laughs> it ended up being 850 pages. I was like, yikes, you know, I got to cut this down. So I did. But it took no time at all to write it because it's so obvious. And as you say, a lot of the background was just there. Yeah. Right. It's just, I just, it was kind of like a stream of consciousness. So then I had to sit it down for a week or two and came back and edited it for six weeks. Now, yeah, well, that's you're, a real, you're a real inspiration because I've read a lot of books. In fact, uh, Peter Drucker, who was a pretty prolific author, wrote two thirds of his book after the age of 65. And uh, you're not even, uh, even close to that yet. And boy, you could, you, if you wanted to, you could have a lot of books. I mean, that was really one of his only things because he was a teacher, but you had a lot of other. Uh, well, one of, the things I, I, one of the things I talk about is that your brain does change after a stroke. Yeah. And my, my things that I'm, I like and things that I'm passionate about now are different than they were last year. And it turns out I actually really like writing books. And, <laughs> I, and I had no idea. And my son even said, you know, you've got a new superpower. I'd like you to discuss some of the specific lifestyle interventions that you underwent. And uh, I think maybe you can start with this intermittent fasting, which is such a profoundly powerful tool. And it's it really has radically changed your life. Absolutely and radically it changed my life. A large absolutely. part of your recovery. Absolutely did. And, and now the book mostly is about attitude and exercises for your mind and for your body because you're musculoskeletal system does interact with your body but I do spend some time talking about um, how different things like supplements and different technologies like hyperbaric oxygen things like that can be helpful um, but I'm not an expert in those and I don't think I'm really um, you know plowing new ground there so I do I do just mention them there's a lot better resources that you can get on the internet and also it's something that you don't need to know right away Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, but you should know it. And, and, and Dr. Mercola gives an excellent, excellent example, which is intermittent fasting. Now, I don't think anybody should wait to have a stroke start doing <laughs> intermittent fasting, right? I mean, I mean, in fact, nothing in that book, you should, you should not wait because it's all about making your brain more agile. But intermittent fasting, if I could, in fact, if I could wind the clock back to when I was a kid, there would be one change that I would make in my life. And that would be that I would stop eating all the time. I would intermittently fast. Because when I was a kid, all the way up through the day I left for college, through high school, I was thin. I was very fit. I was extremely active. I was outside all the time. And about every other meal, I just skipped it because I didn't even come to my mind. I was never hungry. I just, you know, if I was hungry, I'd go home and I'd, I'd eat something about once a day. And the rest of the time, I was outside, you know, climbing trees and building forts and all this stuff that kids are supposed to do. You know, if you're younger than a certain age, maybe you didn't do that, but that's what we used to do in the sixties and seventies. 
well, how we how we spend our time. Now it's a college, and they give you meals every couple of hours in a dormitory, and you sit and you study. So big changes I would, if I could go back and roll back the clock, change number one, intermittent fasting. I would eat one time a day. And now I eat once a day, and I'm, you know, after a lifetime of having cultivated the wrong habit, I don't understand why anybody eats more than once a day because you just, once you start doing it, you can tell me, Dr. Mercola, once you start eating once a day and you eat well, you're just not hungry the rest of the time. Well, well let me refine that approach. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've studied this quite extensively. I actually have my new book coming out. I don't know if it'll be out by the time this interview is published, but it's called Keto Fast. So I've been a passionate fan of intermittent eating uh, mm. and you know, you had lost 52 pounds since your stroke with this strategy. And so you were kind of a setup for this type of eating where you're essentially low calorie or calorie restricted for a significant length of time. But once you get to your ideal level, and I think you still have a little ways to go, but you're getting close. So once you get your ideal level, then that approach can be actually counterproductive and can actually cause health problems and complications. So really, yeah, you have to be careful. So you're, but, but you were right. You need to be cycling. And when you referenced your uh, experiences in childhood, that was, that was really the optimum so that you're eating when you felt the need and you didn't eat. So it, it was this, and it doesn't have to be a specific schedule, but you have to, but for most of us, because we have life cycles and, and appointments to keep. So it, it kind of helps if we make a schedule, but there's no predefined right or wrong, but the general principle, which is what I love about your book, is you just provide these general principles. But with respect to the, the calories, it's eating uh, to a restricted window pretty regularly. It doesn't have to be extreme, just one meal. You can, in fact, I think the ideal is probably closer to four or six hours a day. So once, well, you, once, you, once you reach your level, so basically not eating for 18. And then on top of that, provide a longer fasting. So for one day, maybe twice a week, Right. Uh, you only have 600 calories. So you're right. at 600 calories in 42, 42 hours, which is a partial fast, far safer, mm-hmm. and you can do it twice a week for the rest of your life. Well, I agree with you. I think, I think what I'm doing now is just what's easy. It's just narrowing yeah. it to a window. And um, I will also say that the data that I've taken concurs exactly with what you're saying. So like all other things about your body and your physiology, being able to go into ketosis is something you can exercise, right? So when you first start doing this, it might take you 16 or 18 hours to really get your enzymes switched over to ketosis. But when you get used to it, you're, and, and it's uncomfortable too. You feel like, ah, I'm starving. You know, I need some food. My brain's dying. But once you, once you shift into ketosis, you know, once you get, once you exercise the enzymatic mechanisms necessary, it becomes quite easy. And so I track myself with uh, one of those, you know, uh, breathalyzer ket- ketone devices and what i found was that i was shifting sooner and more quickly consistently over time and so you know i think that if you want to start with this it helped me anyway i started with a really narrow window mm-hmm. so that i'd have 22 hours of fasting before i ate anything but now i'm sure i can shift into ketosis in 12 13 14 hours no problem yeah yeah, yeah. Then, so that yeah. means the window that i could eat in without disturbing that cycle is much larger. Yeah, you don't have to be as rigid to compensate for some of your earlier poor choices. So, but right. once, you, once, you, once you're there and you've reached it, then you become a lot, you have a lot more options and makes, it's actually a lot easier to do.
Well, as in all things in life, I think varying how you do it and having mm-hmm. some variability and some flexibility and, and paying attention to your body and how you respond to it is a good thing. So I don't believe in any kind of rigidity like that at all. Certainly not for a long term. I, I, that's kind of what I emphasize in the book, right? Like mm-hmm. some people were asking, well, what's the perfect stroke recovery exercise? And I say this <laughs> at least twice in the book. There is no such thing because the exercises you do have to be novel and they have to challenge you. And as soon as you get good at them, as soon as you are comfortable with them, that means they're not as good anymore. You need to move on to something else. So the best stroke recovery exercise, in my opinion, is to be constantly looking for a new one, a new exercise. And that's the whole point of my book is not that you sit down and read it cover to cover. Treat it more like a, like a, like a reference, like a, like a resource material that gives you ideas about different ways to approach um, neuroplasticity. From explicit exercises to mental attitudes to habits, right? Just life, life change habits. And so what if, as many as I could. Aside from the uh, pretty dramatic example you shared when you were on the gurney trying to identify the workstation, what are some of what are? Do you have any other similar uh, uh, improvements that you can share with some exercises you've been doing? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, virtually everything, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to make light of it because stroke is a really bad thing, but there's a lot of things I can do now that I couldn't do before. I had been practicing my, my balance for a long time, and I was never very good at balancing. This is before I, the stroke. Before the stroke, never, even when I was young. <coughs> my balance was okay, but, but it wasn't outstanding. But now it's outstanding, and I know it's outstanding because I've had it measured by what's called a sensory organization test, right? Where they actually put you in a box and they move the box around, they move the platform around, they see if you can balance. But I did this from exercising. And I, what I did was I tried to utilize the natural neuroplasticity that I got because of the stroke to try to improve everything about my, my neuromotor system and everything. So one example was, you know, you can do the romber, which is like the, uh, you know, the roadside sobriety test, heel to toe. And I can actually do better at that now than 80% of the normal population. And I couldn't even stand up at first. So I can, I can actually stand heel to toe. And then you can do what's called a modified Romberg, which is look up. And most people, 75% of people just fall over when they do that. I have no trouble. I can do that all day, you know, but I couldn't. But that's the result of exercise. Another thing is I am now ambidextrous. I tried for many years on and off to learn to write with my left hand. Never really did anything. But while I was in a state of you know, extreme neuroplasticity, I picked it up. And within 100 lines, I went from writing, not being able to write at all with my left hand, to now my penmanship with my left hand is better than my right hand. So, I mean, it, it just goes on and on like this. It's like virtually anything, my speech, my ability to cough, you know, and some things turned out to be better than they, they were before I had a stroke because I was using neuroplasticity to, to uh, modify either that habit, that behavior, or maybe that deficit. All right, let's go back to the title of the book, Stroke of Luck, uh, which implies a bit of a, in being an inverse paranoid in that uh, many 
the, the, which is a concept that bad things will happen to each and every one of us. It's inevitable. You just are not going to escape that. But the, being an inverse paranoid, you're seeing what good can come out of that. And in your case, there's tremendous good. And the, one of the reasons you went and developed your PEMF device initially was, be, was because you had suffered from, like many people in our, in our uh, population, just from low back pain. And so why don't you ta- discuss what happened to this pain after your stroke? Well, as you said, I had this lower back pain and I had been developing these PEMF devices for NASA and nothing else worked and they had me on opioids. So I developed, you know, the PEMF device and it actually worked really well for my lower back pain, general aches and pains, injuries and stuff like that. But then about four or five years ago, I started developing like uh, um, the, the chronic regional pain syndrome in my pelvis and legs, which means I was just in pain. And it was probably centrally mediated, which means it was probably something in my brain because the PEMF was not helping with the CRPS. And you can look that up. It's a, it's a terrible, terrible condition. It's got the highest, on average, the highest pain scale rating of any condition. And there's virtually no treatment for it. And the thing that's horrifying about this now, Dr. McCullough, is people, younger and younger people are actually getting CRPS. In fact, there's now there's cases of 11 and 12 year old children getting this disease that once was was relegated to the the old, right? And so something's terribly, terribly wrong in our environment. You know, hopefully, hopefully we can figure that out and change it. But anyway, I started getting CRPS and it was terrible. And I did everything that I could. I, I threw every scrap of knowledge that I had at it and it wasn't getting better. And then when I had the stroke and I, I came out of it the next morning, the pain was gone. So I can tell you that since the Civil War, they had actually been doing brain lesions to reduce central mediated pain. So they would actually trough in your head. Surgeons would do this. And, and, and lesion, you know, they'd poke your brain with a, like a probe and say, is this where it hurts? Is that where it hurts? And when they found where on your brain was representing the area that was in pain, they would actually lesion it. And that would actually re- relieve chronic pain for people who had CRPS. So this has been around for a long time. And uh, they stopped doing that in the 1960s because it fell out of favor because nobody, you know, nobody wants to have their head carved open. But it is known that certain types of pain are because your brain is miswired, right? So, so when I had my stroke, I was so fortunate. And I, and I did talk to Dr. McCall about it. He said, you know, geez, maybe your brain just zorched out the bad circuits. And I, I think that's exactly what happened. I think my brain was under such chronic stress that, you know, it really put stress on those. And that's the area that, 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 uh, that came stroke. So I mentioned this to the neurologist, one of well, every neurologist that I talked to at UNC and all of them sort of looked at me, you know, ha ha ha, you know, you know, <laughs> you know nice. Uh, you know, I already know everything there is to know about the brain, you know, but, but thanks for telling me, right? But, you know, and most of them would say, well, you're just a medical mystery. You're lucky. You know, thank you, lucky stars. But one guy actually had the temerity, the hubris to say to me, he said, well, if you know anything about the brain, you had a pond stroke and that is not where you feel pain. So that doesn't make any sense. And I said, um, well, I said, well, you know, I, I do know a little bit about it. And, uh, and you know, there's, there's a big switchboard in your brain. And okay, you do get vicariation, which means it's like the word vicarious, comes from the same root word, where one set of brain circuits, it's not just neurons, it's more than neurons going on in your brain. Don't let anybody tell you it's how neurons are connected because it's a lot more important than that. It's glial cells and everything. 
But um, if, if one area, one zone, one region is damaged, you can vicariate, which means that a different area of the brain can actually take over that function and adopt it. A lot of people do not know this, but the, the, uh, the schematic of the brain, I actually have this in the, in the uh, book where you just color code different regions of the brain. Like this is the frontal lobe and it does this. And this is the, you know, prefrontal cortex and it, it has these functions and the pons does this. Actually that entire map was based on data from one brain. Hmm. And so all of mainstream medicine believes that all brains work exactly that way. And by and large they do, but it's not nearly as cut and dried as medical textbooks. Would not, not even close. Yeah, so if you've ever taken an anatomy class, you could figure that out real quickly because <laughs> you're just astounded at the wide variety of stru anatomical structures that are, that are there or are not there. Yeah, and some people can, can have almost all their brain gone and then they can regain function or main, develop function that's almost normal. And other people have a very small lesion and they can be permanently disabled. There's a lot about the brain that we just don't understand. But we do understand that under the right conditions, it can rewire itself. And so yeah. what I wrote about, what I've been thinking about nonstop for seven months now is how can I condense that information into the smallest possible package and just make it available to everybody? Yeah, I, I'm just shocked that you compiled this resource in such a short time. The, the, the book of this magnitude literally takes more than a year, and yet you had it published within six months, which is just astounding. Yeah. Uh, it, it's the, almost the last, beyond comprehension. I mean, the last must have been six weeks, I just was <laughs> editing. I was just six weeks of editing. So I really wrote the book in about four and a half months. Wow, it's crazy. So, uh, but getting back to your pain syndrome, uh, do you, did, was the pain gone? It wasn't clear to me. It was the pain gone immediately after your stroke or was it a result of the exercises that you were doing to rewire your brain? It was gone immediately after the stroke. And so, so the very, I had, a, I had a short list of things that I definitely wanted and a short list, list of things that I definitely did not want to have happen after a stroke. And I talk about this in the book. After a stroke, you don't want to injure yourself because you've got to stay active. So don't, you know, stub a toe, don't break a leg, don't fall. And so I have a whole section on making your house safe. I do have a lot of experience with this because I'm a retired firefighter. In fact, I was fire chief here in this area of North Carolina for about three years. So I have, you know, I'm a fully certified, you know, safety, firefighting, first responder. And I can tell you how people hurt themselves. You know, stairs are the number one thing that hurts people. And besides cars, right? And, and stairs really are the number <laughs> one thing. And, you know, if, if stupid people stay away from them, you don't need them anywhere near. But stairs, they're all over your environment. So you need to learn something. So part of safety and stairs is behavioral. And part of it is physical, right? So I go through all of that. But as far as the pain is concerned, it just vanished. I woke up and it was gone and I noticed it instantly. I noticed it maybe even before I noticed I had a stroke because mm. the reduction in pain was so profound. So, so my, my short list of things I wanted was I wanted a full recovery of my brain, but I did not want the pain back. So I didn't want all of the circuits mm -hmm. vicariate, right? I only wanted a, the good ones to vicariate. And so I think I've been about 90% successful because I had a little tiny bit of pain, but now I'm able to exercise and make that go away. So the pain started coming back, but because I was doing the right exercise, because I was doing the right things, and a lot of this is right on Mercola.com. And I'm not just plugging you because you're there. 
I'm plugging you because this is a really great resource. You can go on there. There's all kinds of exercises and things you can do that are really good, that, that, that are really appropriately presented for people at every level. And, um, you know, I was able to do a lot there and I was able to take the knowledge that I had and apply it to the exercises. So I was able to selectively exercise different parts of my brain. So that was a different part of the book, right? So in the book, I tried to make it a resource. So I, I boil down like, what does the brain really do? What do we really know? And if you want to exercise this kind of sensory input for this kind of motor activity or mental activity, you can do these kinds of exercises. And I tried to do that. And I think I've been, I've been really very successful doing that because I didn't get the pain back, maybe just a little tiny bit, but it's totally tolerable. It's, it's you know, less than I would have expected just being 50 years old, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people, such as Dr. Cowden, is a subscribe, you know, he believes you shouldn't have any pain. He's made sure he told me that. And I think he's right. That's the kind of world I want to live in. But I live in a world where you do have a little bit of pain. And that's manageable. And so, um, so if, you're, if, you, if you use neuroplasticity intelligently and you're exercising the right things, you know, it's not just that your brain, I guess the story here that Dr. McColl is trying to pull out of me, and I'm, I'm talking a lot, but I think what he's trying to pull out of me is the fact that I didn't recover every function of my brain because I left the dysfunctions behind because I was not exercising them. And I exercised the, the disabilities I had and I recovered from them almost entirely. But the third thing I did, and I've never heard anybody talk about this, was I used that neuroplasticity to improve everything else. So like I said, I'm ambidextrous now. I can write with both hands. I can balance a lot better. I can use my sensory uh, inputs a lot better for balance and motion. Um, a lot of things, a lot of things. Now, I'm not advocating that anybody whack their head and hope that things are better because that's just ignorant. Or don't do that. Yeah. But I am saying that neuroplasticity is unbelievably powerful. And if you're in a position where you have a stroke or not, you can use neuroplasticity to fix things that are broken, to help to exclude things that are wrong. Part of neuroplasticity is habituation, right? We talked about this. So if, like I have a left vestibular problem. So I used habituation, which is a form of neuroplasticity to tune that down so that that bad signal of balance is very small and it's dominated by the good signals that I want. And that's, I talk about that in the book at length about how to do that. Yeah, it's a great resource. So the first time we met at ACIM, which was a year and a half ago, I believe, I noticed that you had a, 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 a ptosis of one of your eyelids, a drooping. And I, be, I believe it was that related to your first stroke that you had? I think it was. Do you see it now? Because yeah. I don't feel like it's as pronounced at all. Um, no, like it's, it's hardly noticeable. but it's, yeah. it's still a little bit there, but it was very noticeable when I first met you a year and a half ago. Yeah. But that was after the first undetected stroke, undiagnosed stroke. But, you know, it was, it was after that one, but it was before my second stroke, which was just a half a year ago. And after that, a lot of problems went away. Like a lot of my gait problems, they were fixed. I'm not sure how much of that was pain. And I'm not sure how much of that was just rewiring. The reduction of pain maybe improved my gait, but also I lost most, I'd say 90% of that ptosis went away. And I also had a loss of sensation on the left side of my face and the sensations returned. Hmm. So, was that spontaneous or were there any specific exercises you did to improve that? Well, I will tell you, I 
think it came on slowly. I don't think that ha- I think the pain went away. Boom. That yeah. instant. But I think the uh, recovery mm-hmm. was actually uh, progressive. That was the way I, I perceived it. And I think it was a combination of the exercises that were explicit, but also neuroplasticity is a general thing. So if you're exercising enough areas in your brain, you get a total brain response of neuroplasticity. It is known, for example, that one area with one lesion of a stroke in your brain will actually cause neuroplasticity throughout the brain. So if you are actively encouraging neuroplasticity in enough different places in your brain, you're actually, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats and a lot of things just get better because your brain is in the zone. It's in the mode to rewire itself and it does. So prior to your stroke, there was really no reason for you to study this. And obviously after you had it, there was enormous motivation to do that. So I'm wondering if you could put your experience and frame it in the normal experience of a person who has a stroke, I haven't studied it carefully, but my guess is that you'd be in the radical extreme of someone who has suffered from, and that most people who've gone through what you did would, would probably be left with severe residual disability and have, you know, basically nowhere near the recovery you have. Well, I don't, I don't want to be too angry about this. But if I had done exactly what they advised, I would be sitting in chair right now or lying in bed, not really able to speak very well. Have, if I had waited for the system to catch up with me and call my number and say, okay, we can give you physical therapy now. And if I had just gone to physical therapy, as I was, if I had just done what was prescribed and advised, I don't think my recovery would have been very good. I certainly could not have given this interview. Yeah. No way I could have could have said any of these words, right? Um, however, because I, I, I found out that I couldn't even get into physical therapy for three weeks after my discharge from the hospital, you know, I said, the heck with this. And so I developed my own physical therapy and rehab um, for myself. And it was so funny because when I actually got into physical therapy, and don't get me wrong, the physical therapists were excellent. All the healthcare providers that I interacted with, they by far were the most helpful. And they were the most, you know, directly kind and helpful and knowledgeable of any of the specialties that I interacted with. But the system is so dysfunctional that it took me three weeks just to get an appointment with them. But when I got my appointment, I got there, they started evaluating me. They said, whoa, you're able to do all these things. And your medical report says you can't. So without any PT, I was already able to recover about 80 or 90% of the way that I wanted to get before I ever saw a physical therapist, right? So, so I think your statement is absolutely correct. If you do just what they advise you to do, if you do just what you're prescribed, I don't think your recovery will be very good. So the big point that I make over and over again in the book is that your recovery is entirely in your hands. Certainly they can help you with things. Certainly PT is excellent. Another thing I learned about PT is that most people drop out of it. I didn't know if you know this, but most people who get prescribed physical therapy or recommended referred to it, I guess, um, most people only get it for a week or two and then they say, well, I already know these exercises. So I'm just, you know, I'm going to go home and lift a few weights and I'll be okay. And, and so they think, well, I've already learned everything I can in physical therapy. And I know this is true. 
because when I was scheduling physical therapy, they said, well, we can only get you one appointment now, but by the time you get in, a bunch of appointments will be open because people drop all the time, usually after a week or two. And so I, I looked into this and it's really true. So what happens is PT is only as good as what you bring to it. So when I went to PT, man, I had a huge list of questions and I said, can you measure this? Can you measure that? So they put me on every machine they had and I started getting numbers, right? So that I knew when I was doing something right, it was getting better. Like that sensory organization testing, man, I got the numbers on that. And then a few weeks later, I did it again. And they said, whoa, your improvement is like way better than anybody in like the history of the history of doing this. And in fact, one of the physical therapists said, your scores are higher than mine. And I said, okay, you know, because I was exercising. So physical therapy is one of those things, you know, Dr. McCool, it is just exactly like exercise, okay? If you bring nothing to it, no enthusiasm, no knowledge, no, no effort, you don't get much out of it, right? But if you bring a lot to it and you, and you, and that's part of the medical system, you definitely want to engage if you have a stroke. Get the best physical therapist you can and the best occupational therapist and the best, you know, um, speech therapist. Because I had all three. Because I, I had some pretty severe, and you wouldn't know it, but I had some pretty severe problems when I had my stroke. But I recovered most of them, as you know, by November when I went to ACIM. When I agreed to go to the meeting, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to stand up. By the time I went to the meeting, no problem. It was no. pretty well. You wouldn't have known you had a stroke. Right. Well, no. The fast recovery, I'm just going to say the fast recovery was because of what I brought to the treatment. If you just do what they're asking you to do, I think most people have a pretty poor recovery. And I'm going to make a statement now, and I will stand by this. Most people can and should expect a much, much better recovery than the medical system would expect or report if they simply do as much as they can, but also do as much as they can't do and keep exercising it and keep doing new things. I think it's generally true that everyone's recovery from wherever they are on that spectrum of disability, their recovery will be much, much better, like orders of magnitude better than the average. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty confident though, you are an anomaly, Bob, um, that the average person with a stroke would never have the motivation or the skill set to compile what you have. Uh, this book is just an absolutely extraordinary resource that anyone with a stroke, and, and in my view, should be required reading for pretty much every primary care clinician because they need to understand this and provide it as a resource for the people under their care that need this type of information that it really isn't out there consolidated in one place. Like That's had. what I decided to do, put it all in one place. But let me, let me tell you, Dr. Mercola, when I started doing this, it was very dark and very, very foreboding, and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. Because the way I felt when I started, if you can imagine somebody putting like four or six really heavy, coarse wool blankets into boiling water and just letting them cool off just enough so that they don't hurt you, and then piling wet wool blankets on you, I felt like that was weighing on me the whole time. And I had to force myself to lift a foot. I remember I spent a week just getting to the point where I could lift and point my left foot. But I just kept doing it. And I said, I am not going to sit here doing nothing. So I think had I not done that, I would have been in very poor shape right now. But that's the main point I'm trying to get across is that start early, move often, keep going, especially when you don't want to. 
especially when, you know, you just had a stroke. You, you've earned your right to sit down and relax and don't do anything. Eh, bad idea. You want to keep moving. And especially when I didn't want to, I would force myself to get up out of a chair. I would force myself to get up out of bed. I would move. I would lift feet up. I'd point my arms. I would sit there in chairs and just point at, you know, light bulbs on the ceiling. And it did not feel good at all for about three weeks. But it took, it took about three weeks. And by the time I got to physical therapy, I started feeling a lot better. Yeah, just, it's actually extraordinary. So uh, the key, though, is to, provide, is to have the uh, motivation and the desire to improve. I mean, that's foundational because you have the best resources in the world. Yep. And it's not going to help. So you've got to be motivated internally. So you have to do whatever it takes to, to achieve that. Of course, a lot of that part of the lifestyle, diet, exercise, sleep, uh, you're going to be limited exercise when you have a stroke, most strokes. But, uh, you know, that's the key to have that motivation and get a resource like yours to understand these strategies that can be very profoundly important, especially in the early stages. I agree. I agree. And, and, and you know, I would have been happy if I could have just gotten on the Internet and bought a, uh, bought a book that told me all these things. That would have been great. But there's two things. First of all, I have way more resources available to me than the average person. I, I did have a lot because, you know, I can pick up the phone and I can call five or six or seven neurophysiologists and, and I'll talk to them right away. So the average person probably can't do that. And, and I had an education background in this. So I knew the questions to ask and the things to look at. But uh, secondly, you know, um, there really wasn't a good resource. And I thought to myself, you know, I kept thinking, well, you know, I even asked when I was at the hospital, well, are they going to give me some recommendations? <laughs> oh, yeah. But, and I could hardly say that sentence, by the way. Are, are they going to tell me what to do? And one of the nurses said, oh, yeah, we have a stroke booklet and it tells <laughs> everything about stroke. But if you read it, it's, it's, a, it's like a cartoon, right? It's like you just had a stroke. So go ahead and rest and don't forget to take your medicine. <laughs> you know, and I was like. I was like, oh, no, this is, it's got to be better than this. And so I'm going through, you know, I'm going through Amazon, and there's some good books on stroke, right? They're all sort of like, this is what, you know, 100 top experts say you should do for stroke, or this is, you know, something else. But what I wanted to do was collect every resource related to exercise, lifestyle, attitude, choices, that kind of thing that I, that I could and there's nothing in there that I didn't try. I didn't just list a bunch of junk, right? Everything in there I've done. You know, you can call me out on this at some point, but even the really strange things, I tried them. If it, if it seemed to me to be stupid and hokey, it's not in the book because the book was originally 850 pages. So I <laughs> stuff out. Yeah, so I, I wrote more than you thought, Dr. McCullough. I really did. But uh, <clears throat> I got it down to about 600, and it was way too long. So I actually got the stuff that I think you need to know on the first day, and I compressed that into a second book. I sent that copy of that to you also. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called Stroke of Luck Now. So that if you need something to know right now, what should I do right now? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the ER, I'm being, you know, admitted for a stroke. What should I do right now? I boiled all these things down, just the essential points of which exercises you should be thinking about and safety points you should be keeping in mind, and that's it. And I just make I made both of those as ebooks as inexpensive as you know Kindle publishing would let me make them. Yeah, that is great. So, you know, in the United States, where much most of, where most of the people will be viewing this, 
today, 250 people will have a stroke. 250 yep. people. So yep. if you happen to be viewing this and you know one of those people or have had someone within the last few days, uh, then get them a copy. If you know someone who's elderly and at high risk or has high blood pressure, then get them a copy because ideally they need it when it occurs. You don't want to be waiting to have a, I mean, if they prefer reading print, then get the book. Otherwise you can purchase it electronically. But it's, it's literally a resource that should be in every stroke center in the country. And it's, um, it really needs to be there. And I'm not sure what it could take to do that, but uh, you, maybe you can donate a copy to them and for the, because it has so, so much potential for radically improving needless pain and suffering. Well, that was, that was my objective. And I can tell you, I'm quite certain that that's not the way they're thinking at the hospital because probably eight or 10 times I would have a neurologist, you know, a physician ask me, hey, what are you doing as I'm doing these exercises? And I would tell them, <laughs> well, I'm doing exactly what you told me to do. I'm going to keep doing it until I can do it. And, and I had two or three guys say to me, you know, that's a really good idea. Yeah. Like, tell people that. And I'm like, yeah, you know, come on. Why not? It's, it's obvious, right? So in a way, everything in the book is just obvious when you think about it. So there's nothing deep, revelatory, you know, in the book. It's just the, all the obvious stuff collected into one place. Yeah, and there's a term in Latin, uh, it's actually in medicine sometimes called res ipsa loquitur, or the facts speak for themselves. And you are the classic illustration of that. It's, I mean, yeah, maybe a wacky idea or is, is intuitively obvious, but you've done it and you've got this fantastic result that is just about as good as you could possibly anticipate. Yeah, well, actually, I think in some ways it's better than I anticipated, but to be perfectly honest, some things I'm still working on, but they are getting better. Like mm -hmm. I, I have this kind of swimminess in, in my vision, so I feel like I'm off balance, but I'm actually recovering balance better than I did before. So some of my neural circuits are better. A couple of them still need to recover. But because I'm keeping neuroplasticity up, they're actually recovering slowly, but they're getting better. And I notice it over time. Yeah. Well, you're not even a year into this, so it's pretty amazing with what you've done. Well, thanks. Any other uh, insights that you'd like to share or uh, observations from your experience? Well, I do, th I do think that, uh, you know, there are lifestyle things you can do to reduce the risk of ever having a heart attack or stroke or anything like that. And, and it's all on Mercola.com. And that's all stuff that I, I wish I, and funny thing is I was doing all these things, you know, weightlifting and all this stuff was a big part of my life. I even owned a gym until five years ago. I had, I, they had to give it up because I had so much pain, but uh, you know, as, as you can see on Mercola.com, there's all kinds of exercises that have been shown scientifically to correlate with very, very, very low probability of, of heart attack and other, you know, vascular problems and stuff. So I, I recommend doing that kind of thing. And I also recommend a lifestyle of cultivating neuroplasticity. It just makes you a better person, you know. It, it makes everything better about your nervous system. That's, that's yeah, as you said saying. in the book, and you mentioned here, is that you don't have to have a stroke to benefit from these strategies because we're always growing and hopefully always growing and, and uh, recovering, um, developing new skill sets and, you know, challenging mm -hmm. ourselves with novel uh, movements and strategies so, so that we can continue to keep the brain going. And, and, you know, we're talking about stroke and acute loss of physical function and skill sets uh, mm -hmm. and senses. But 
what's really important to know is that it's, and I'm not sure that there's, any, there's certainly no studies done it, but it's highly likely that the same strategies will also radically decrease your likelihood of getting what's coming to be a tsunami of, a, of an epidemic or pandemic, which is Alzheimer's, there's neurodegenerative diseases. So, you know, it's, you're getting two for one, essentially. I think that that's an excellent thought. I think it is extremely likely that you are correct. And I think that the more that you exercise uh, these, these kinds of things, the less likely it is that you'll get Alzheimer's. In fact, I've had this discussion with my colleague, Dr. Mark Pomerdahl, who is a neurosystems physiologist, and he brought the same point up. He said, you know what, I bet if you, you know, because he and I were talking about these exercises, he and I talk every day because we're very close research colleagues. And he said, you know, if you're doing these exercises to recover from stroke, he said, everything he's ever seen indicates that it also, you know, collaterally reduces the chances for virtually every other neurodegenerative disease. Well, just the uh, intermittent fasting, uh, we don't have to wait. I mean, the research is pretty solid and there's a lot of evidence to support it because when when you have calorie restriction uh interventions i mean it's well documented to increase the decrease these inflammatory cascades that radically increase your risk for alzheimer's like nf kappa beta and and amyloid plaques and tau tangles absolutely so there's like you know i'm not an expert in that and and so I, I point to it and I say, you know, go read something about it if you're interested in this. So on many points in the book, especially the latter half of the book, I point to a lot of these things, but I hadn't really explored them fully. And also for me, the horse was out of the barn somewhat. I had already had two strokes, right? Mm-hmm. So even though I was trying to prevent another stroke, I was also trying to maximize this recovery. So, so I, although I point to those things a lot and, and I say, you know, you should read about this or read about that. Here's a link. Um, you know, or two, or here's some scientific papers, you know, part of it was that, uh, you know, for my book, what I wanted to do was collect a lot of really simple things you could do. So I ended up writing several hundred pages of exercises and, and things you could do that require no money, no equipment, no special space, you know, no special training, you know, nothing like that. And that's the wonderful thing about intermittent fasting is that it doesn't cost you anything. In fact, it saves you 10 or 20 bucks a day. Yeah, <laughs> right? well, potentially, depending on what your eating habits are. Yeah, it definitely right. saves money. Well, in my case, I probably saved half of my food budget. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, just again, the caution, Bob, is to uh, make sure that, especially as you regain your, your muscle, musculoskeletal ability and ability to do exercise, when you're having strength training days, that's, where, mm-hmm. that's the day when you really want to increase your protein, your carbs, and mm-hmm. calories so that you can... Uh, because you're activating autophagy, but then you want to get the rebuild and activate enzymes. Yeah, I actually do that. I actually do that. I, I didn't want to get too much into the details of it because I think everybody needs to do that, you know, what's right for themselves. But I actually do uh, do strength training twice a week. And yeah. on those days, actually leading up to those uh, events, I actually eat a lot of protein, a lot of carbs, a lot of yeah. food. So yeah, what I've learned too, especially from some other researchers, is that uh, doing your exercises fasting is even better because then your growth hormone levels are pretty high and, and in the fastest state you can really activate it and then with you know within an hour or two maybe 18 20 40 hour fast um, or partial fast but then it's when you throw the protein and the calories on and you can have essentially feast you have these feast and famine cycles which is exactly that's exactly right and, and if you think about it 
that almost perfectly matches the way that it would have been paleolithically, right? Like Absolutely. You feast. You feast after the big hunt, right? Right. Before. You feast after you, you got the big windfall, whatever it was you hunted and gathered. So I agree with you. I actually like to work out when I'm fasted. And um, that's actually, I like to do all kinds of physical training, for, especially biking, uh, which I don't, I, you know, different now that I've had a couple strokes, but, but I still like to do those fasted. But a lot of times it helps if I actually eat more like 24 hours ahead of that. Yeah. yeah. Surprising. So well, I kind of fast myself, but you know, so the, the carbohydrate, as you know, the carbos don't work that way. So you kind of got to time it, but I, you know, yeah, yeah for definitely I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. yeah and I, I think there should be a variation. You should go feast and famine. I don't think no matter what, no matter how you cut the cake up, continuous feasting as is the American lifestyle this is not good for you. Well, that's, that's what bad. you did. And that was probably your biggest risk factor for having the stroke is the continuous feasting. Yeah. So well, with, with, without the restriction of calories uh, regularly. Right. Exactly. But once I got going, boy, it was, it was easy to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Again, I'm, I'm absolutely astonished that you're able to compile such a valuable resource. And I firmly believe that everyone watching this should pick up a copy because you never know when you're going to need it. And not necessarily that you have to read it because it is a comprehensive encyclopedic resource and reference for anyone who has a stroke. So I'm sure that if you, if you are fortunate enough to not personally go through this or someone in your family go through it, then you are going to know a friend or a relative or a neighbor who is, and you can immediately give them the book and they will have probably the best uh, compilation of detailed specific instructions on in how to recover their lost function. So I couldn't recommend this book more. It's, it's written at a pretty, I think the book I, as I wrote it is written oh, at yeah. a, a pretty readable level, right? But there's, there's a lot of ideas layered on top of each other. So you might get a new idea every line in the book saying, or you can do it this way, or you can do it that way, or if you do this variation, it'll do it differently. You know, and then the other thing, because I wanted everyone to be able to experience neuroplasticity. Yeah. The best way that I could do that was that I, I discovered this way of this, this different written language called LEET, L-E-E-T. You may have heard of it. And so the back of the book has just got about five or six different texts converted into LEET which is just where they take letters and numbers and they switch them. So the letter, you know, the letter L becomes the number one and the letter E becomes the number three and then T becomes the number seven. And at first when you see it, it is complete gibberish, but it's so interesting because when your mind, and, and there's, there's an example of this at the museum right there in Orlando at the, uh, believe it or not museum, Ripley's believe it or not, they have a big wall mural of Leet. And the interesting thing is, from the beginning where you can almost not read it at all. By the time you get to the end, you can read it quite easily. And that is exactly what's going on with neuroplasticity. You can actually like a, if a person's paying attention, I try to emphasize this, you can feel your own neuroplasticity kicking in as your brain rewires itself to read English written differently. You know, I'm actually surprised and I reluctantly accepted the gift to review this and I said, yeah, okay, what Bob going to put together on this? But I was just shocked. I mean, you really, you hit it out of the park with this one. Wow. Well, thank you very much. Yeah.